You're listening to episode 155 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it is the 16th of July, 2021, here in Norwich. And on the show today, we have a translator special. We have translator and mentor Sarah Ardizoni talking to two former mentees from our Emerging Translator Mentorships program. So we have Rosie Eyre, who went through the program just earlier this year. And we have Jamie Lee Sol, who was a mentee on the program about 10 years ago. And they talk about their ways into literary translation and representation and coming from backgrounds that are maybe not the most obvious routes for this kind of career and talk very candidly about the challenges of becoming and trying to stay a literary translator. So it's basically a deep dive into how to become a literary translator. And if you're looking down that kind of direction, then this podcast is an amazing kind of how-to guide. Sounds fascinating. I look forward to it. So Steph, what what else is happening around the National Centre for Writing at the moment? Well, Simon, one of the most exciting things we've had happen in the past few days is that we put our summer holiday workshops for young people on sale. And the big difference is for the first time in about 18 months, we're actually having these workshops in person at Dragon Hall. So these are really great informal sessions which give young people the time to explore their writing skills, whether it's poetry or prose or maybe even lyric writing, whatever kind of writing they wish to develop. We've got a tutor at each session. Each session is about two hours long and they are packed with games and writing trivia and the opportunity to make friends with other like-minded young writers. So they're only £5 each. As I say, they're taking place at Dragon Hall. And if anyone would like to book their young person onto these sessions, please do head over to the website to do so because there are still uh, sort of uh, capacity limits in place so that we can ensure there's social distancing. Another bonus is that if you are perhaps living outside of Norwich, maybe in a more rural area, it's a bit tricky to get your young person to these sessions or perhaps it's beyond your budget at the moment. Absolutely fine. Do let us know because we have bursaries available for travel and for attending these workshops, which is really fantastic. So we've got sessions on creating characters, working together as a group to come up with a creative project, writing about home and about the city life, living in Norwich. Norwich, ways to find inspiration and medieval writing, which is inspired by the beautiful surroundings of Dragon Hall. So check out the website for more details. And if you're listening and you're not from Norfolk and you can't make it to these sessions, do head over to our website still because we have lots of self-guided online courses for young people um, that you can take for free right now. Because this is one of the first kind of workshop groups that we've been able to do since covid really Uh, i imagine there will be people out there who are a little bit nervous about how that's all working and the uk government is obviously chucking all the rules out the window but we're taking a slightly more cautious approach aren't we We are, absolutely. So uh, there's a strict limit of 10 young people per workshop. Uh, It will be uh, very well spaced out in one of our bigger rooms at Dragon Hall. uh, And we'll follow all of the usual precautions around wearing face masks when you're moving around, social distancing, uh, anti-backing and cleaning, wiping down surfaces. If you want to read a bit more about those precautions, you can do on our website. It's on the homepage if you scroll near to the bottom of the page. And also, if you do have any concerns, just give us a shout, get in touch with us and we can have a chat with you. 
yeah, but hugely exciting to actually be able to get back in the building and start doing that kind of stuff. But yeah, we're being very careful to make sure we do it in the right way. Whether you're local or hail from parts unknown, I should also mention our lovely Discord community. This is a really brilliant way to keep in touch with people online, find other writers, do writing sessions and share tips and techniques. And particularly over the last year, it's really been invaluable to be able to keep talking and keep connected to other writers. It's wonderful to actually be able to meet people from around the world as well. So yeah, if you're kind of really looking for other writers to chat to, but maybe you're not quite ready to venture out into the world yet, that is a brilliant place to go. And you can find a link to that down in the show notes. Okay, so let's hand over to Sarah Ardizoni, who is talking to Rosie and Jamie about all things to do with literary translation. Hello, I'm Sarah Ardizoni, and I'm a translator from the French-speaking world. And I am here talking to two tenacious and talented translators, Jamie Lee Searle, who translates from German and now Brazilian Portuguese as well. Hello, Jamie. Hi, Sarah. Very happy to be here. Lovely to be talking to you, Jamie. And also to Rosier, who translates from French and Spanish and who is my current mentee on the National Centre for Writing's Mentorship Programme. Hello, Rosie. Hi, Sarah. It's lovely to be here. Great to hear you. Okay, so here we all are in our virtual world, sadly not in the same room, but I'm sure the conversation will reflect just how intensely we've thought together about some of the issues we're going to be exploring. And what we're going to be exploring is some of what the National Centre for Writing Mentorship for Emerging Translators offers, and crucially, what it means to the individuals concerned. So is it a springboard or is it already the culmination of a long journey? And if it's the latter, what can we do to enable more people of all backgrounds to embark on this journey? So we're going to be asking the key question, how do you get to become a translator? If speaking another language and being immersed in another culture wasn't always a given. This is the case for Rosie and for Jamie, both brilliant linguists whose roots into literary translation have required vision and tenacity. They've had to learn how to nurture self-belief and sometimes how to reimagine the story that they tell about themselves. And they've had to do that more than literary translators from overrepresented backgrounds like my own. In my case, I'm London-based, middle-class, born in a French-speaking country, into a Francophile family. And even when we returned to the UK, the radio was always tuned to Radio France International. I'm going to give you a little introduction to Jamie. Jamie Lee Searle is a literary translator from German and more recently from Portuguese, having spent five years living in Brazil. She's co-founder of the Emerging Translators Network. She mentors early-stage translators, and she coordinates the Stephen Spender Prize for Poetry in Translation. So hello again, Jamie, and we're going to be hearing uh, in a moment about your route into literary translation. And I'm delighted, as I say, to be talking to my National Centre for Writing mentee, Rosie Eyre. Rosie translates from French and Spanish. One of the things Rosie and I have been interrogating is how she narrates her own story. So I wonder, Rosie, 
whether you might kick us off with the current version of your biography, because I think this covers so much ground with such compelling efficiency, and it leads us very nicely into our first topic for discussion, which is what has been your personal route into literary translation and into the mentorship scheme. When you hail from a Blackpool comprehensive, literary translation is not an obvious career path, nor is it a given. But my hunger for literature and languages was clear from the start. First, literature. The French call their bookshops librairie. This is one false friend that rings true for me, because growing up in a family of avid readers but limited book funds, the library was always my bookshop. After spending my formative years plundering the library shelves, I was a teenager who knew my own literary mind, enough to rebel when of mice and men was announced as our GCSE set text. Unsold on the brutality of Steinbeck's novella, and intrigued after spying to kill a mockingbird on a syllabus, I made my case to explore Scout's world solo, and formed a finchley minority of 1 to 200 on exam day. As for my appetite for languages, that was a feat of random mutation. Growing up, nobody I knew spoke a foreign language, and until the age of 11, my only notion of multilingualism was hearing my mum conjure snippets of French with Michelle Thomas during our annual camping holiday in France. But my curiosity was piqued, and when successive teaching gaps in secondary school French put classroom progress on hold, I noted the login details of the school's language website subscription and began tutoring myself at home. If later years saw more consistent teaching and brought Spanish into the mix, exchanges were never part of the offering. But I sensed that if I was serious about getting into Cambridge, something nobody in my school had managed in over a decade, real-world immersion was non-negotiable. So, with summer looming, I did some virtual sleuthing, registered with a website called Lingu, a kind of match.com for language exchange partners, and set up back-to-back exchanges with a pair of French and Spanish strangers. To the relief of my anxious parents, as we said our farewells at the airport, I touched back down again six weeks later, buoyed with turbocharged fluency and the beginnings of two lifelong friendships. In autumn 2012, Two years after a Blackpool School's outreach visit first planted the seed in my mind, I began my degree in modern medieval languages at St Catherine's College. On arriving in Cambridge, my first revelation was that I had a northern accent. Here I could use all the fancy words I liked without risking social prior status. But the way I pronounced even workaday terms meant the question of where are you from never lagged far behind. My second transformative encounter was literary translation. There are only so many times you can explain the great vowel shift before the novelty fades, but teasing extracts from writers like Proust and Cervantes into English was infinitely exhilarating. I discovered the alchemical processes at work as, in my role of translator, I shape-shifted from the text's most intimate reader to its voice of creative expression in English. I'd glimpsed what my dream job would be, how deftly my twin loves of literature and language might converge. The only puzzle, in a world of where are you from, was how did I get there? I graduated on the 23rd of June 2016 and woke up at 5am the following morning to the tune of Brexit. The four-year Cambridge bubble had given way to real life. 
literature swap places with litter bins as I joined the export sales team of Blackpool's leading manufacturer of durable polymer. Translation then traded with travels, with me curtailing my budding career in street furniture to teach English in Madrid. Back in the UK, a Masters in Translation Studies at Manchester University followed, culminating in a dissertation on a gender-bending French novel. By the end of my European summer, I was a demon at pronominal gymnastics, but still no wiser as to how to sidestep into real-world literature translation, so it's straight back into commercial translation instead. Here, at least the entry route was more intuitive. Companies posted jobs, translated submitted CVs even if the payoff meant grappling with tax documentation and pet food packaging. But I kept an ear to the ground, and on learning about the National Centre for Writing's Emerging Translator Mentorship Scheme, I sourced a previously untranslated Swiss-French novel and prepared my sample translation pitch. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Rosie. There is just so much in there. And of course, that core question is, how do I get there? Um, and hopefully that's something that we're going to be unpacking in the course of our conversation together. And Jamie, I'd love from to hear from you as to how you've got there. Um, as part of the enrichment, if you like, for Rosie's mentorship, you kindly agreed, Jamie, to be part of a, an informal panel over Zoom, uh, sharing your personal journey into literary translation together with the industry insights and experiences that you've gathered and garnered along the way. And I was struck not only by how articulate you were about some of the challenges or even obstacles that you've had to overcome, but also how insightful you were about breaking into the publishing industry and a career in translation. Your hard work and success means that you, Jamie Lee Searle, are now a go-to insider but I wonder if you could tell us about your journey from outsider to insider, about, in Rosie's words, how you set about getting there. Thank you, Sarah. Um, and, and to Rosie, too, for, for reading that biography to us. It's been really fascinating to hear and, um, and the conversations that I've been um, fortunate to have with Rosie so far as well. Um, similarly to Rosie, I also grew up working my way through the stacks at the local library. Um, so also had that early fascination with reading whatever I could get my hands on. Um, and I, I do remember as well that I was always fascinated by other cultures. And um, I, I find that quite interesting because I was fascinated by them even before I was really exposed to them um, because my, my family didn't um, have any holidays abroad when I was a child so the first time I went to another country was um, I was probably about 13 or 14 it was a school exchange with Germany um, but even before that there was this kind of longing in me to have adventures when I look back now I feel that the reason I'm in this career is because of the seed that was planted by a German teacher I had at secondary school who was incredibly inspiring. Um, she really went off curriculum um, and that did not make her very popular with the powers that be in the school. I remember there always being quite a lot of conflict um, with her and say other language teachers or, or um, the head teacher. Um, she taught in a way that was very, I think it was a combination of um, 
what they would have called old fashioned, but also um, innovative as well. I remember the classroom as being just this. It was vibrant. It was packed with there were there were posters and books and everything from Germany. And what we looked at, it was a combination of old grammar books from the 60s, but also she would bring in various texts. So we weren't using those quite kind of dry textbooks where it's just conversations about things that don't really spark much enthusiasm. Um, so she she was strict and demanding, but also very encouraging and inspirational. And she saw that I, I had this um, quite swift love for the language and she used to lend me books and recommend films and do all kinds of things to encourage me. And I'm so grateful to her for that. Um, and I really think because um, I did briefly do French as well when we um, were able to add on another language at school and the, the teaching really wasn't great on the French side of things and it left me cold and I never really progressed with that language. So I feel that had it not been for this unconventional teacher, um, I probably wouldn't have developed the same love for languages that I have now. That's so important, isn't it? That that person yeah. ignited that spark in you and uh, that if you're not going to have access to languages through other routes, what is it that can be done in the way modern foreign languages is taught um, that mm. does ignite the sparks in a, in, a, in a democratic way for everybody? Yeah, definitely. Um, because it was really the only exposure I had at that point and it could have gone one way or the other. Um, so I'm really grateful that it was that positive experience. And, and, and so I think, again, similarly to Rosie, those early ingredients were there in the sense of loving reading and literature and also the fascination with other cultures. Um, in terms of when I first became aware of literary translation existing, um, you know, being something that was possible to do, I do remember... Um, in my late teens when I was working in a bookshop that I when I was stacking books I remember seeing two different books they were translated I saw on the title page um Carol Brown Janeway was the translator one of them was um from German the other one was from Hungarian and I think seeing the same name in two books really kind of sparked with me oh this is something someone actually does as a as a career or part of a career um, and it interested me because I thought this brings together two things that I'm really passionate about. Um, and then I, I went off to university. I had a literary translation module, which I loved, but the, the teacher, uh, well, the kind of lecture in it was quite discouraging to me when I expressed an interest in going on to do an MA in translation and interpreting. She said it was an incredibly competitive course that even if you got onto it, that the chances of actually finishing it were very low, that people found it incredibly difficult and basically said, I don't think it's even worth trying, which <laughs> looking back is not really a good stance for an educator, I don't think. And particularly I, at the time, because she'd been quite critical of my translations that I'd produced in that course which is fine because you know critical feedback is helpful but it didn't come together with encouragement it was just discouragement. What was the impact then on you of being told that this was inaccessible and it was pointless? What did that do to your sense of this career that you glimpsed through Carol Brown K 
Carol Brown Genoway's name in the um, in the books in Waterstones those years ago? Well, it made me think that I didn't have what it took, that that I, you know, that perhaps that wasn't where my skill lay. And I think it was just enough to discourage me because I didn't I didn't know anybody that was doing that job or, or anyone that worked in publishing at all. So I think when you just get a tiny glimmer and then it gets crushed soon afterwards, it's probably easier to be discouraged than if you've got several several different examples or kind of say mentors reference points that you can look to yes to get a perspective on it and yet clearly the discouragement didn't stamp out ultimately your desire because here you are today so how (laughs) did you how did you fight back well I I think I for a while I probably forgot about it and tried you know went a different route I after I graduated um from my BA I as quickly as I could uh, needed to find work I started working for for Reuters um, in Exeter which is where I did my degree Um, and I was translate I mean that was the main you know there aren't a huge amount of job opportunities for graduates in Devon they were uh, Reuters were a major hire of graduates down there particularly language graduates so I was translating um news updates from the stock exchanges from Germany, Austria and Switzerland. So it was all about mergers and acquisitions and going through company annual reports to find data and so on. So I was using my language, um, which I loved. Um, It's just the subject matter that didn't really spark me. Um, But I realised that, you know, I was translating and I was enjoying that. And I think over probably after about a year and a half of that, um, I started doing research on my lunch hour. I think the spark started to make itself known again in terms of, you know, could I still make literature part of this? Is there a way I can combine things? And it was at mm. that time that I discovered the the journal or the publication New Books in German online. And I started reading about it and there was um, the biography of the editor, the then editor, Rebecca Morrison, Um, And it described about her career trajectory up to that point, how, you know, um, the kind of work she did. And I looked at it and just thought, this is my dream career. This is really what I want to do. The things that she had done, the things that she was doing. And I just very boldly sent her an email and said as much, said, you know, I'm sure you're very busy. But um, if you could tell me a couple of things about how you got to that point, I'd be incredibly grateful. And Luckily for me, she and she's a wonderful person. She sent a really generous reply. She um, gave me some information about what she'd been doing in the past, how she'd got there. And she gave me the opportunity to review a book for the publication. Yeah, it was just I'm very grateful to her for that. And through doing that, I started I've now been reviewing for new books in German for, I think, for about 13 years now. Um, and I've done a lot more collaborations with them. I think it was probably a few months after that, um, an invitation came through my door in Devon to um, an ambassador's reception in London <laughs> for a new books in German event. And I was, I, I wrote to her and said, I presume, you know, this is in connection with, and she said, yeah, yeah, it's for the London Book Fair, if you'd like to come. And I, you know, I found the idea very intimidating, uh, going to the embassy and so on. But I, I went and also went to the London Book Fair. And it was just this sense of 
it was a little bit of a glimpse of what you know what was happening there in London in the publishing scene and the boost of someone believing in me and her giving me the opportunity to write that review was had so much impact on me and I applied to do a master's in in London in Anglo-German cultural relations which partly was to do with cultural diplomacy and also had a literary translation module um, and I got a bursary to do that part-time alongside working and moved to London to do that and just yeah it was just such a simple thing her belief but it, it had such a big impact so that was when things really started up again I think. That's such a compelling story and that it started with you having the vision to write to that editor and it all stemmed from there and ultimately who'd have thought that an ambassador's reception could turn around your life actually at that point and and kind of really reinforce this idea that it was time to get to get back on track with your with your desires and I'm interested as well that both you and Rosie have talked about in your case Jamie moving away from translating mergers and acquisitions into the book world that you wanted to be in and and for Rosie that that was about getting away from translating uh, material around dustbins or pet packaging or tax documentation and and getting getting into the into the book world so following that reception, Jamie, could you talk us through how you got from there to ultimately ending up as one of the very early cohorts on the National Centre for Writing's Mentorship Scheme? Yeah, yeah. So um, I I did the MA part-time, as I mentioned. So that was over a course of two years. And during that time, um, I started to take on a few small translation jobs freelance um, that were mostly through um, the MBG editor passing them on to me. I also did a research project for for BCLT, actually, the the publication, in other words, looking at the impact New Books in German had had over the 10 years of its um, existence at that point. Um, And for that, I needed to contact a lot of publishers. So I was given a spreadsheet of all these publishers, email addresses and phone numbers, which, um, you know, I realise now was a huge, huge resource. Um, So I was having a lot of phone conversations. (laughs) Um, And so as the end, so I was doing a few freelance things, as I said, and then as the end of the MA approached, I started um, in my holidays from my part-time job I started doing um, internships at publishing companies I started applying for graduate schemes because I was I was quite keen on going into editorial in publishing or cultural diplomacy so I was applying for all those kind of related jobs and I got very close with quite a number of things like down to the last couple of people but I, none of the jobs actually, um, I didn't get any of them. I kept getting close, but not getting them. And on a couple of the internships with the publishing companies, people were saying to me, well, you know, you've done one internship, it's been really good, but it, it takes a lot more to really get a job here at the moment. So you'll probably find you have to do maybe, I don't know, four to six months of internships almost back to back before something will come up. And that just wasn't, I mean, obviously, you know, they were unpaid um, at that point and it wasn't an economic possibility for me. I had rent to pay living in London, was expensive. It was me kind of really taking a punt on trying to make things work. But there was a limited point of time that I could try that for through MBG. And MBG was based in the Goethe Institute and I used to do a lot of work in the library there while I was doing my MA. Um, I did a... um, 
a kind of a freelance translation editing job for the Goethe Institute um, together with Stefan Tobler. Um, and kind of shortly after that, I collaborated with him in helping to set up um, and other stories, the independent publisher. Um, so for about six months that um, I was working on that with him. And through that, I met a lot of other literary translators. Um, and that was a real kind of turning point as well. And I think through that, discovering that community and also realising how much I was enjoying these little jobs that were coming in, it made me realise, you know, this isn't actually a stopgap or a sideline on the way to finding kind of a traditional full time job. Actually, I think this is what suits me best. And it was when I realised that and kind of let go of this sense that I had to find the conventional fixed salaried nine to five. Um, and actually got to know myself a little bit better and realised that I am more suited to project work and I like the independence of being able to organise my own time more. That And also, I think it was this fortunate intersection at the time, so this was um, probably about just about 11, 11 years ago, of being um, the right time and place, really, because the literary translation industry was, was starting to become more structured um, and once I realised how much I wanted to do it and then actually started actively carving it out, that's when things really started to take off. So I applied for all the opportunities I could find, really. So um, the BCLT summer school, uh, there was a summer academy in Berlin. Um, it was the first year of the Literary Translation Centre at the London Book Fair. Um, and at the summer school, so it was different back then. Um, in that because it was very early on with the mentorship scheme we didn't even know it existed uh, um, well I didn't know it existed but at the end of the week um, Danny Hahn called me into another room and said you know we've, we've selected one person from each of the groups I think that was how it worked and would you like to do it and obviously I was over the moon with that and and really wanted to so uh, and that was the inaugural there had been a year previous to to that uh, which was just two people but this was the first full cohort I think there were probably about 10 of us so yeah that was how that started. That's such an encouraging story to hear Jamie and absolutely there was a cohort the year before and that was when I was mentoring Vineet Lal when there were just two mm -hmm. students in that year um, but so encouraging that you you were up against geographical financial very real constraints in terms of breaking into what you perceived as the sort of the mainstream London-based publishing industry, you weren't going to be able to fund yourself on unpaid internships. And in mm. fact, you cracked the access problem by sort of doing it for yourself, by being involved in setting up a small indie and other stories, which we're all now very familiar with all these years on. And, and at that very pivotal moment where the translation community was really um, establishing itself and supporting each other. And, and through that, you found your way through. And of course, you, as I'm sure you'll go on to discuss later, went on to establish, co-found the Emerging Translators Network. So that's that idea of translator community changing the rubric a bit and making other ways of imagining it possible, I find really compelling in your story. So you've both talked about what brought you to the point of applying. How about your experiences of the mentorship itself? Can you offer a bit more insight into what your respective mentorships have involved practically and what the biggest takeaways have been for each of you? And perhaps this is also a nice moment to introduce a book 
that we've all been reading and reflecting on, People Like Us by the Somalian-born Wembley-based barrister Hashi Mohammed. And I'm going to add into the mix a quote that Rosie selected for us from Hashi's chapter on mentoring. And it goes like this. Once you're plugged in, you're part of the matrix and can reach out and make your own connections. But it can be very hard to penetrate from the outside. So, Rosie, um, would you like to begin by talking about your experiences and the kind of things that you've been working on? Yeah, and thank you, Sarah. Well, in terms of what I've worked on, um, for the benefit of everyone that isn't you and doesn't already know, I've been working on a book report on and a sample translation of the novel, um, the Swiss-French novel Nude dans un verre by Fanny Rodman. Nudes in a glass of water um, in English. And so that's been kind of the big translation project, um, which has been wonderful. But alongside that, beyond the actual craft of translation, the mentorship's been really instrumental in that idea of making this tangible, impenetrable dream feel tangible. Even though, obviously, it's not a magic formula and that you don't come out of your mentorship with a book deal and a plate, but it's really shown me how I might get there eventually. A bit like, so it's going back to what Jamie was talking about, the kind of showing me the steps along the way, so the kind of the fact that you need to establish initial connections that could then open the doors in future. I think the image I'd always had in my mind really before coming to the mentorship was like in the in the Harry Potter films you've got in the first film there's a mirror of error set and you've got this stone in the mirror and then they're trying to get at it and they just don't it's not possible. And I think for me that's what it felt like because there was no roadmap to how you might even go about getting closer Mm. but over these months I've really developed more of an understanding of the more concrete steps along the way so kind of understanding that an important part of the process is relationship building and again going back to what Jamie was saying so both with publishers and also with fellow translators Mm. so it's really important I've realized to prove your literary work with publishers so there's no you can't just knock cold on the door and expect them to say oh yeah we want you to translate our next book you need to build those relationships maybe do book reports for them and do things that prove that you're someone that would be good for them to work with and that that knows your stuff really and similarly with other translators that when you can build relationships you kind of you become more part of the community and then people might think of you kind of even if it's just to pass on a book report or something like that but mm-hmm. it's really relationships are key and it I suppose like the Hashi Muhammad quote it's so much about being plugged in and igniting that spark for me that's been massive really over these six months also I felt really plugged into kind of the literary world more widely Jamie you took part in, in the mentorship around a decade ago, to be to be precise. Um, so will you tell us a little bit about your experience on that? Yeah, so as I mentioned, it was the early days of the initiative. Um, and obviously, things change a lot in 10 years. So some of the mentees um, that were in that same year as me are some of my closest friends now, who I speak to, you know, sometimes on an almost daily basis. 
and we've we've done so many things together in terms of collaborations within the industry but also just you know friendships in life in general and so that's one of the things mm. I'm most grateful for and um picking up on on what you're just saying about the geographical aspect um when we when I first met Rosie through um through the zoom that you set up and the conversations we've had since I think one of the first questions I asked her was how has it been doing this all remotely um because I know for me that that meeting up with these other translators and developing that connection was was so was so important to the experience and I was just wondering if if Rosie felt that that she'd still been able to develop that sense of connection and one of the things that that she did mention was how the fact that that the restrictions that have been placed on things by covid has also democratized things so otherwise it could quite easily be that if a lot of people are london based a mentorship say finishes and then everyone just meets up in london all the time and the people that are elsewhere are going to miss out on that so the fact that we've all gotten much more used to things happening virtually but i actually found that that was like a nice surprise from what rosie was saying that it, it does mean that everybody's been able to get involved and that they've been able to form these connections regardless of where they are. And I think it's also a, uh, indicative of Rosie's resilience there in terms of turning quite a challenging situation into a positive. And so mm. while there is the frustration perhaps of not being able to meet in person, it has meant sort of radical new access in a way that that wouldn't have occurred otherwise. Rosie, would you like to talk a little bit more about the self-belief and the confidence and indeed the resilience that you've needed to build up in the course of your mentorship? It's interesting, actually, because that's a conversation I know that we had really at the very start. You said to me, you know, you just so you know from the get-go, you've kind of, you've got my vote, I chose you. Um, And we've talked quite a lot about self-belief because I think really my default has probably been to kind of to to feel almost a bit presumptuous to to push for things um because I think really until when you're when you're coming almost from the outside um into this into this world you don't you don't feel any sense of entitlement. You don't feel like you should be banging on the door. You almost feel like you should be kind of timidly pressing the doorbell and then taking a few steps back and hoping someone might open. Um, and so I think you've really instilled in me this idea that kind of it's important to nurture this confidence in yourself to actually to keep knocking on the door, not to be arrogant, but also to acknowledge the difference between founded confidence and arrogance because there is a difference yeah and and what's interesting there and in terms of what Jamie was talking about is that at some level we're all as human beings and professionals reliant on others to affirm us and to remind us that what we're doing is of a quality that's I think an interesting journey that you're going on Rosie where of course when we're starting out you know we need people to give us breaks we need to earn the right to have those breaks and we need to deliver on those breaks and that's all part of a sort of an intricate transaction and at the same time when we when we've done that and we've acquitted ourselves well it's about sort of building it up in that golden well so you've got it there to go back to within yourself it doesn't always have to come from someone else yeah definitely I think that's 
I definitely feel that strongly, this idea that once once it's almost like belief is something that's handed to you and then you can instill it in yourself. But I think at the very start it does have to come it has to come from outside. Mm. So as well as the as Hashi Mahabid's book, People Like Us, I've also been listening to his BBC Radio 4 documentary, Adventures in Social Mobility, which he made before writing the book. And in it, in this program, he keeps returning to the question of recruitment. So exactly this, Rosie, this links really nicely, this thing of how do other people have belief in you? So around the question of recruitment, he's interrogating who gets taken on and who gets excluded. And he quotes or interviews, indeed, a partner at a leading city law firm who is himself from a northern working class background. And this is what he has to say. One of the things I always find interesting is that a lot of the people who start out slower and quieter and take some time to work out what their environment is, and then when they know what they're doing, come out of themselves, they're often the smartest and most interesting. There were clearly pivotal moments in both of your journeys towards literary translation where as we've been discussing, the encouragement or even the discouragement from a teacher either gave you self-belief or steered you temporarily away from the path. What are your thoughts on accessibility in the field of literary translation? I think back to to when I was applying to universities, um, because I'm really impressed by Rosie's hard work and tenacity. I mean, the fact that she was the first at her school in a decade to get into Cambridge, and that is really, really incredible. Um, And I, back at 17, I visited Oxford um, and I felt intimidated by the atmosphere um, and Mm. and I didn't apply. And it was partly that, it was partly the sense of intimidation and it feeling like an outsider. And also partly the fact that I found out while I was there that you weren't allowed to have a part-time job if you were a student there because of the workload and that concerned me because I'd essentially been working weekends and holidays since I turned 16 um, and I knew that I needed to continue doing so in order to kind of supplement the student loan and um, to, to pay my costs through uni so the fact that they weren't allowed to do that to me I mean maybe there would have been a way around it but back then I think the combination of feeling out of place and finding that out was just enough to make me to to kind of run in the other direction really and I I have regretted that since and I think particularly the experience life experiences I've had since for example kind of living in Brazil for nearly five years and being an outsider and learning that it does take time to kind of find your way into something and I now realize that that is what I really felt I felt like an outsider but that perhaps if I'd have gone for it you know I would have hopefully found found a way into it but that's so interesting that you've 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 navigated that transition in your mind that what was perceived as and real economic and social barrier but there's a level at which these are also barriers that we construct in our own heads and you've navigated that successfully I had less opportunity than some and more than others but as I started to venture into the world of publishing even London you know as a city um which was new to me as well I did feel intimidated and and you know on the back foot in a lot of circumstances um I'd spent my life 
you know, up to that point, reading voraciously, but but perhaps not always the right things. And I felt this lack of ease when I was in a room with people from, say, kind of professional, elite academic backgrounds. What do you mean by not by not reading the right things? Well, I I felt particularly since I started to go to publishing events, there would just often be these references to texts or authors that I hadn't read. And I know you can't read everything, but I started to get this sense that a lot of people in the room had read the same things and I hadn't necessarily read read those things. (laughs) You know, this is despite the fact that I, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on. Um, I did a BA in German. I did English Lit A-level. But I just feel in terms of college, uni, I just felt that despite despite having had that opportunity to go to university and doing a BA and an MA, ending up in, in those rooms with publishing people, I still felt that somehow there was this there were these gaps there. And and thinking back now, I mean when I was growing up, I didn't know people who were say editors or lawyers or doctors or, or from those kind of professional backgrounds like that so I wasn't used to conversing with them um I was the first in my family to go to university my parents grew up um in a working class setting so um a council flat my grandparents lived in their council flat their whole lives um my mum had to leave school at the age of 14 because an extra income was needed um it was just her dad bringing her up because her mum sadly died when she was quite young both my parents were really kind of drummed it into me that studying was important and I, and I liked it as well. Um, so I benefited from a lot of things, their encouragement. We lived in an area where there was a pretty good state school. I got bursaries, student loans and so on. So as I said, you know, more opportunity than a lot of people. Um, but, but I didn't come from, say, an affluent um, background and this kind of makes me very aware, especially where there are so much discussion recently, which there really needs to be, and this is a good thing, about accessibility, not just in publishing, but specifically in the world of literary translation. And where you have layer upon layer of inequality piling up and where you have the most barriers to access and whether that be relating to class, ethnicity, gender, um, it makes me very aware if, despite the fact that I, as I said, did have Um, a lot more opportunity than some if I still felt inadequate in those rooms and in those conversations how do others feel who who face multiple barriers and would they even be getting into the room in the first place Um, and this is something that you know it's really been on my mind a lot recently. Thank you very much for that Jamie which is very articulately put and um, uh, Rosie did you did you want to speak to any of that in terms of the, the 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 canon or not knowing and knowing the right things, the classics, those some of those issues that Jamie has just raised. Yeah, and um, well, that really this idea of not having necessarily read the right things that really resonated with me as well because I think that's definitely something that can make you feel on the back foot because a big part of being a literary translator is being able to speak the language of publishers. It's kind of been brought home to me that I don't have all those references to hand, even though I thought I'd read a lot. Suddenly you think, 
have not even touched the surface of all these things that they seem to be talking about in the TLS or in all these various places. It's quite hard and it does put you at a disadvantage, I think. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there's so many different ideas playing out here. On the one hand, there's a canon that is that is very much up for question, more up for question at this moment in time than it ever has been. But nonetheless, um, as you've talked about, Rosie, if you if you don't know the kind of initially established rules in the first place, then how can you begin to challenge that? I think it's still useful, even for a sense of self-confidence, to know what other people are referring to, even if you're not necessarily with agreeing with something and even if you know mm. it's only part of the picture. I, I think a key word in here as well is, is dialogue. It, it's both that transparency of, of, of what the agenda is, what people are talking about, but it's also the reflection that that agenda may well need changing in and of itself. Yeah. It's, you know, introducing it as a concept at a young age, also perhaps um, at the stage where people are selecting GCSEs and A-levels, having translators visit schools and talk about their work, presenting it as something that can be a rewarding career in balance with other work, obviously something that's financially sustainable and enjoyable. Um, I've been giving a lot of thought to how I could reach more people who, who perhaps may be interested in literary translation but feel shut out or people who don't even have it on their radar as a possibility, but that maybe have the skills and the enthusiasm there, particularly people that are facing, that are from disadvantaged backgrounds or translators of colour. And I've been thinking, how can I offer cost-free mentorship um, to reach more to reach more people? And obviously, that's something, you know, I could have every number of mentees I take on, I could offer a free mentorship, but I'm really trying to think of ways that I can do more than just a few because obviously with everything we do strength in numbers the more we collaborate the more we can achieve so yeah that's something that's very much top of my agenda at the moment that's so exciting to hear and incredibly galvanizing to hear how you you scale up and get other people involved and and, and turn it into a, a stronger initiative Jamie and of course what's interesting and what you highlighted just there is that actually it's getting people in their minds to the point of even considering translation as a career option and to the point of considering applying for mentorships okay. which brings us back to where we began this kind of circle of of what comes first the mentorship or instilling the desire to translate in the first place but I'm going to ask us to turn to the future now and very simply I'm going to be nosy and inquire what happens next what do the months ahead hold for each of you well, at the start of the mentorship, I really took the decision that I was going to give myself over to it as much as possible for these six months. I knew this is an opportunity that only comes around once and that I never expected to come around at all. So I really wanted to give it everything. And so now really the big challenge is trying to think how to strike the right balance in the months ahead between pursuing literary translation and kind of keep chipping away and trying to become an established literary translator with enough work to make it a viable part of my long-term income stream. And Jamie, what have you got coming up? Building a living that's personally and financially sustaining. I mean, that's really the key. And I mean, I, I feel that I've overdone it in the past 
for me, 10 years on, I've learned from this, but I, I have to continually remind myself because it's so easy, particularly if you're, you know, obviously worried about um, having quiet periods um, and then you, you know, things seem to come all at once and then you have a quiet period. So you take on too much at the period when everything's coming in. I think I, I remember when I used to go to literary translation events years ago and I would hear other trans established translators say you have to have something else you can't live just from literary translation and I think early on because I did um, a couple of my first novels were crime fiction and then um, I got you know quite a lot of inquiries came in for crime and there was a period I would say the first five years I was doing it where I, I did have books lined up back to back and I was thinking to myself huh you know, they said this wasn't possible, um, but actually it seems to be. But what I've learned is that even if it's feasible, it doesn't necessarily mean it's desirable. <laughs> but the thing is, is that it didn't actually do me any good um, in terms of physical and um, emotional mental health, because working on things back to back, just feeling this pressure the whole time and, and crucially not having something different to balance it with it wasn't just about the financial sustainability of it but the fact that I think most people do find that it's too solitary to do that all of the time and I kind of think of myself as being a sociable introvert I'd like to have that balance between translation and more interactive work where I'm doing things with other people because it's it's really only when we get to know ourselves better that we can figure out what kind of career or working life that will work for us. Having made a lot of mistakes, having reinvented um, my career in different ways over time, I now feel that I'm starting to get a balance that actually works for me as an individual. I'm just about to start on a couple of new book book projects that I'm really excited about, particularly because last year was quiet. So it will be really nice to get back into that book rhythm again. Exactly. That's fantastic. Okay, so we're approaching the end of our conversation here. And I wonder uh, if I could just ask you what piece of advice you would give to yourselves if you were starting out on a mentorship tomorrow? Yeah, I think it's not, it's not always a linear process. I think a lot of the time there's this sense that once you get this holy grail of your first full length book publication, then it's, that's it, you know, it's plain sailing, you're emerged. But I think it's important to remember that there, there will be difficult stages where you question what you're doing. Were it not for the connection I found with the translation community who are like wonderful, I, I don't know if I would still be doing it, honestly. And that would be a shame because I do love it. But it's it's all of these people that, that keep me going all of the time. I suppose ultimately a mentorship is a relationship between two people. So you've got two big human variables. Um, and in that way, it's hard to talk about a mentorship in general terms. Mm. But the one thing that you do always have control over, and which I'd urge my hypothetical self or anyone else embarking on a mentorship to remember, is your own attitude. That links back to what we were saying earlier about self-belief. Um, Hashim Mohammed talks about filling in the blanks. And yes, as a mentee, by definition, you have blanks that need filling, but you also have a lot to give. 
and you've got this potential that's just waiting to be kindled. I know a long time ago, my mum talked to me about something which has stayed with me ever since, um, about these kind of four different steps of learning. So you go from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence to unconscious competence, and then you arrive at conscious competence. Hooray! Um, <laughs> which is, after all the tongue twisters, you're probably very glad to have arrived at conscious competence. Um, but I think a mentorship is will inevitably make you more conscious of what you don't know to begin with. Um, so it's going to highlight your conscious incompetence. But I think you need to remember that that awareness is actually already a step in the right direction. You're one step, well, you're two steps along the way then. Um, and I suppose as a final thing that I'd say to anyone that's thinking of applying to the National Centre for Writing Mentorship Scheme or to any mentorship scheme is go for it because I never thought that I would get this mentorship and it's changed my life. Wow, what an emotional and uplifting and extraordinary sort of way to to end there. And I suppose I just feel we've heard so much wisdom from both of you that the only other thing I would like to add is that mentorship is also by definition a dialogue and and the learning is two way and that uh, in this conversation today and in the course of the six months that I spent working with Rosie um I have learned so very much as well so uh it's as you say Rosie very important to remember how much mentors have to give as well as to receive thank you so much for all your thoughts and all your insights and all your very hard work in preparing um, for what is quite a personal interview and I feel that you've shared so much there both of you that it will be of interest to people considering translation as a career option and considering the mentorship at the National Centre for Writing and beyond. So thank you very much Jamie Lee Searle and Rosie Eyre. Thank you Sarah and Rosie. Thank you. Thank you for listening and thanks to Sarah, Rosie and Jamie for that incredible insight. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook. And if you head over to our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, you can find out more about our Young People's Time to Write workshops, which we mentioned, as well as all of our other programmes and events. And you can also sign up to our newsletter. As a UK registered charity, we do rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. Please do consider making a donation, which you can do very easily by heading over to the website and clicking on the Support Us tab. It really helps us to keep running programmes and providing especially free workshops for young people. Please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode. Mm-hmm.